Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sisters in Crime. I'm your co-host, Kate, here with Sarah. Hi. And today I will be telling the story of a senseless murder that happened in Amish, Ohio during the 1950s. On July 18, 1957, Amish farmer Paul Koblenz retired to his house after a long day tending to his 150-acre farm. He went to the basement of his unfinished one-story home. His house was built against a hill that overlooks State Route 241, or for people that are familiar with this area, Millersburg Road. It was around 10 p.m. when Paul was eating a late-night snack while his wife, Dora, was working in the kitchen. Their baby, Esther, was peacefully sleeping until their dog started barking. Dora went to tend to Esther while Paul investigated outside. A few short minutes later, a short man with a gun in his hand entered their home. He was wearing a handkerchief tied over his mouth and nose. Dora met him in the kitchen as he asked her if they had horses. Dora said yes, although the horses had been turned out to the field for the night. He ordered her into the living room and told her to sit down, and his partner, a tall man, held Paul at knife point. Both of these men were English, meaning non-Amish. That's what the Amish people call, like, people who aren't Amish. Gotcha. Both having been described as having tattoos all over the forearms and reeking of alcohol by Dora later. The tall man told Paul to lie face down on the floor and demanded he tell them where they kept all of their money. Paul said that it was in a drawer under the sink. The tall man rummaged through the drawers until he found Paul's billfold where there were $9 inside. Paul pleaded with them not to take all the money, so he put the $5 bill back in Paul's pocket and kept the four ones, which is super confusing to me. Right, like why why wouldn't you just take the $5? Right, if that's your motive to steal all the money... Also, like, yeah, this is 1957, but was $5, like, that much? I mean, I guess. No. I mean, yeah, it was a lot more than it is today, but it's still not that much. Like, Like, it's not enough to do all this over. Exactly. And while this was occurring, the shorter man became angry with Dora and struck her in the face several times. He grabbed the collar of her dress and actually ripped it down to her waist, exposing her undergarments. Dora was clinging to her baby this whole time. The tall man and the short man exchanged weapons with the short man now having the knife and the tall man having the rifle pointed straight at Paul. Gesturing with the knife, the short man threatened to kill Dora's baby and husband if she didn't submit to his sexual advances and then scratched the baby's forehead and cut Dora's hand. Disgusting. Right. Paul ran to the kitchen and as he did, the taller man fired two shots off at Paul, striking him in the back and then right behind the ear with the second shot. Dora ran into the room and found Paul lying there as the bullet had passed through Paul's skull. Paul and Dora's neighbors, Mose and his wife Susie, who were actually Paul's parents, heard the gunshot and sprang out of their bed. They ran over to Paul and Dora's house. Mose ended up reaching the county sheriff's office, and by the time they got to the scene, Mose's son had died. Paul was the youngest boy of the family, and in Amish culture, he would have taken over the family farm completely. Paul had two other brothers who unfortunately passed away years before. The Amish community was completely shocked and mortified by this murder. 
such things like this didn't happen in Holmes County. At Paul's funeral, 2,500 people showed up and paid their respects. It was considered one of the largest Amish funerals in Ohio to ever exist. Wow, that's pretty big. Yeah. But Ohio is known for Amish. Like, there is a big Amish community in Ohio. Probably yeah. because of all the rural land. Yeah, and actually, when I was doing some research about this, it's a lot in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and they're actually mostly from German descent. Like, some of these Amish that I that like are incorporated in this story um, spoke German, which was interesting. I never, I never knew that. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, and Harry Weiss was the Holmes County Sheriff at the time who arrived at the scene. Harry had a long history with Holmes County. He had been the sheriff for quite some time and had always had a good relationship with the Amish community. The majority of the time he had to deal with the Amish when it came to the law, they were almost always the victim and never the perpetrator. Which I feel like is not very shocking. I mean, that's kind of what everyone knows of the Amish. Right, right. Harry set up a search party to find the suspects that had done this to Paul. He even brought in the bloodhounds to search for the scent of them but had no luck. The next day, a car was reported stolen in Fredericksburg, which is about seven miles north of the crime scene. A 1953 gray and cream Pontiac four-door sedan was missing with license plate UY704. It belonged to Lloyd Crillo. The car was later spotted about 90 miles away on State Route 80. A dozen cars were dispatched to the area, but nothing turned up. Dora remembered that the shorter man had removed her glasses. The glasses are found shortly after in an abandoned truck a few hundred yards south of the Coblins farm in a ditch. It looked like the upholstery in this truck had been lit on fire in an attempt to destroy the vehicle. The authorities were able to lift fingerprints off the steering wheel and Dora's glasses, though. Dora was also able to give good descriptions of the men who were thought to be Chester Carter and Mike Demolian. They were two locals that disappeared after the murder. Mike was from Worcester in adjoining Wayne County, and he had a previous juvenile record where he was on parole for a Philadelphia auto theft charge. Chester was also from Wayne County and was slender with dark hair. Both the men were 20 years old and said to have hung out with each other often. Then on Saturday, July 20th, Emery Baldwin was shot as he was making a routine check on his fishing cabin on the Illinois River. Thankfully, there was no kill shot. Emery was okay. He was approached by two men, one taller and one shorter, fitting the description of the two men who killed Paul. The stolen car, the Pontiac, was found in the bushes near the cabin, linking this to Paul's murder. Marshall County Sheriff Jay Evans led a hunt of the area, including the Coast Guard, searching the Illinois River to find the two men, but had produced nothing. Shortly after this, Chester soon surrendered after hearing he was a wanted man on the radio. He surrendered in Worcester, about 460 miles away. However, when he was attained, he insisted at the time of Paul's murder that he was at his grandma's house, packing clothes to leave town. He said that he would promise a judge that he would leave town, the week prior when he was fined $100 and given a 30-day jail sentence for intoxication and disorderly conduct. Interesting. Yeah. Chester had been in trouble with the law before, but nothing close to murder. They wanted to give him a polygraph, and the FBI ruled him and Mike as suspects based on fingerprints found in the truck off that steering wheel. However, Weiss was having his doubts now and regretted naming Chester as a suspect. 
Jerry Knapp, who was the owner of a bar in Wayne County, told authorities that two men that matched the suspect's description left his bar earlier that day of the murder. There were several eyewitnesses saying that they saw the two men suspected of having done this. However, when Don Blakely, a mail caller for Kraft Foods, tipped off the police that two men were seated at the concrete abutment at the Indian Creek Y, Authorities responded immediately, and sure enough, the two men were still there with their thumbs in the air, desperately trying to hitch a ride. Troopers arrested the two men at gunpoint, and the men offered no resistance. The first man admitted to being Mike Demoyan, however, the second was 19-year-old Cleo Jean, is what he went by, Peters. Mike later said that he had never even heard of anyone by the name of Chester Carter. <laughs> After the mm-hmm. After they were arrested, Mike accused Jean of being the one who shot Emery Baldwin. Jean confessed to being the one who shot Emery, and Emery later identified him as the one who did. The guns were tossed in the Illinois River, and a search was underway to find them. Mike actually also accused Jean of being the one who shot Paul as well. Interesting. Mike and Jean were questioned for four hours at the Marshall County Jail. The two admitted to being in the Coblentz house when Paul was murdered, and the gun that was used to murder Paul was found in the Illinois River. Mike's father told authorities that Mike had left the house with it that Thursday when Paul was murdered. Also, this was a shotgun, just for the record. Oh, a shotgun. Yeah. So, like, when he shot Paul, it was with a shotgun. Wow. They came really... Yeah. Fully prepared. <laughs> like, yeah. wh- where you just go and rob houses with a shotgun? I, I don't understand. Yeah, apparently. Mike had an arrest record going back to when he was 12, although Gene had not been known to the local law. The two had met in Kentucky, actually in jail, but just kind of as an edit, Gene hadn't been known to the local law where Paul was murdered, but he had been in jail before because that's where he met Mike. Okay, I was going to say when you said that, I'm like, "Mm, how did they meet in jail? Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, so they just didn't, the local law enforcement just didn't really have any records of Gene, but he had been to jail. (laughs) Right, Um, gotcha. No strangers to jail. But they were transported back to Ohio, and they struggled to find legal representation, but they disclosed info of that night that Paul was murdered. The two had planned to go hunting that Thursday, but instead decided to get some drinks at the Holmesville Inn, and that was when they got the idea to try and make some headlines. They had originally planned to steal a car and then shoot at anyone who tried to chase them, and hopefully that would have been a sheriff. I'm speechless. Right, so they they go out, they're drinking a ton, and then literally this is just kind of what they're trying to do for fun, and they were hoping that sheriffs would chase them. So they could shoot at them. Uh, okay. <laughs> then they were drawn to the Coblentz house only because it was the only house near with the light still on. Because, a, hold on. Time yeah, out. go ahead. The Amish have lights? It, well, it was like a gas light thing. It was like, um, you know, like a little, like handheld okay. thing with the fire. Okay. It wasn't like a light switch, but there was light coming from the house. <laughs> okay, edit. Yeah. It was light coming from the house, not from electricity, but from a flame. <laughs> yes. But that's a good point because that is the whole thing around this case is that a lot of people in this area or in Ohio, not in this area, but in Ohio, at this time, no one knew anything about the Amish. 
which is why I think this case gained so much attention, just because it was so different. Yeah. At a preliminary hearing on July 26, Jean, who was accused of actually shooting, pleaded guilty to first-degree murder while Mike pleaded innocent. A jury was picked in August, and they returned indictments against both men. They appeared in court separately, and they both pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge ordered them to Lima State Hospital for the so criminal... So wait, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you. So the one dude pleaded guilty, but then when the trial came around, he pleaded not guilty due to insanity. Yeah, this was okay. like a prelimin- preliminary hearing because they're both going to go on to have two different trials. Gotcha. Okay. So the judge ordered after they pleaded guilt not guilty by reason of insanity when they got the jury all together, the judge ordered them to Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane where they observed for a month and the doctors ruled them both fit to stand trial. Yeah, I'm just wondering where they think they're insane. They're stupid. You're not insane. You're stupid. You're you're confusing the <laughs> <Yeah>. two here. <laughs> yeah. Well, their defense. I think part of it was just like their defense attorneys like didn't know what the hell to do. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, what do you do with that type of case? Oh, actually, my clients they didn't mean to go and murder somebody. They just wanted to shoot at cops. What? Right. <laughs> December second, nineteen fifty-seven, at the courthouse in Millersburg, their first trial began. Jean's trial was first, and both were charged with first-degree murder. If convicted, they would they could face the death penalty. The prosecutor was James Estill, and this was his first ever criminal case, let alone murder trial. He was asking for the death penalty. He suspected he would have difficulty with a conviction of this because, quote, Amish are forgiving people with deep religious convictions against capital punishment or revenge, end quote. Which is very true. The Amish do not believe in capital punishment. But um, when one of their own is dead because of this, uh, maybe they might be persuaded to think well, a different way. We'll see. Oh. <laughs> Although Amish prefer not to engage with the court system, it would be wrong to think they didn't care what became of Paul Coblin's killer. However, the Amish don't serve on juries, especially if it is a capital offense. They don't believe in capital punishment and usually resist sitting on a judgment of anyone. However, by law, they still had to be considered for jury. But they basically are excused because everybody has to fill out like forms and questions and stuff. And they always say that they obviously they don't believe in it. So they can't sit on a a capital punishment jury. So do they not believe in it because of like a religious? Belief? Yeah, they think only God should have the judgment. That- Side note, but doesn't it like say in the Bible something about like eye for an eye? Yeah. Well, also to abide by um, the laws of the land, and the law of the land is to um, that's also like in the Ten Commandments too. <laughs> yeah, thou shalt not kill. Well, yeah, but yeah, the Amish just don't believe that someone should be put to death by the justice system. But should they be in prison because of the justice system? Yeah, they believe in that. But they, they just al- don't believe in the death penalty. Right. And they, I think the biggest thing, at least from my research, is that Amish don't want to be sitting in on the judgment of someone else. That's the biggest issue. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Because they say only God should judge. Gotcha. So because of this, and like I said before, you know, a lot of people didn't really understand the Amish culture and the community in the 50s. There were tons of spectators at this trial. It was like shoulder to shoulder, shoulder, and as well as media attention. 
the immediate attention was crazy. Sheriff Weiss testified at the trial that he had said that Moe's Coblins, Paul's dad, met with Gene Peters after he was arrested. And when Moe asked Peters why he shot Paul, he replied with, they needed money. Yep, that $5, I'm sure, really helped them. <laughs> yeah. During the trial, the prosecution brought up the written confession by Peters. However, the defense would say that Peters was coerced into writing it after being starved and without water for a day and a half while the men were being questioned. The defense was pushing the fact that this was not premeditated nor an act of violence, but rather a senseless act that was the influence of Mike. At the time, in 1957, Miranda rights were not a thing. That wasn't until 1966. Peters was poor, though, and did not understand how the law worked, so he had no problem talking before he was given an attorney. That really has, like, no relevance, but I just thought that was interesting. That is really interesting because... Can that be held against him? Or hold it? Can that be held against him? Yeah, that's kind of what the defense was getting at. Is they were still trying to talk to him before he did have an attorney, but at the same time, like Miranda rights wasn't a thing, so that's why gotcha. Peters wouldn't have had any idea anyhow. Right. Okay. So yeah, none of that mattered, and the jury found Peters guilty of first degree murder. The judge sentenced him to the electric chair on February 11th. However, that was just a month away. And the law required the death sentence to be at least 100 days from conviction. And actually, I'm not sure if that's still true today. I almost want to say that I feel like today they usually make it way longer than 100 days. Yeah, like nobody just gets sent to the chair immediately. Like that actually took me by surprise. Yeah, yeah. Because there's appeals and stuff that you have to go through. Like there's actually like yes legal hoops that you have to jump through to make sure before you end a man's life. Right, right, right. So the judge had to call Peters back into the courtroom the next day and resentence his execution by electric chair to April 10th, 1958. So was he electrocuted on that date or? No, no. Okay. Okay. But we'll get into that. Next up, Mike DeMillion's trial. The defense attorneys for Mike waived a jury trial and used a three judge trial with the judges being appointed by the Ohio Supreme Court, which is interesting. I never really knew that was a thing either. I guess I did, but it's not common. Yeah. In this trial, Mike also had a written confession that was brought into evidence. However, he had made no mention of what he did to Dora about threatening her, ripping her clothes, and basically just talked about how much beer they had before the murder happened. And to this day, from my research, like some of the things I found is Mike was interviewed by like a couple of these authors of the book I read. And they say that like he still denies ever doing anything like that to Dora. But so where did that information come from? Like nobody just makes that up. That was Dora's statement. Oh, okay. And you would think that she would never in a million years make that up because. Right. Why would someone make that up? And Dora had cuts on her as well as the baby. If you remember, um, she said that like they cut the baby, which right. that, that did take place. So in this trial, as well as Jane's, many witnesses were called to the stand to testify. After the trial, it took the judges about an hour and a half to reach a verdict that Mike was not guilty of the first account, which was murdered by premeditation, but guilty of the second, which was murdered by committing a felony. Once Mike returned to his cell, he said that he felt he had a fair trial and he was satisfied with his conviction. So Wait, Anna, what? <laughs> Yeah, he, he was just, he was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Alrighty. So in Ohio, capital punishment had been part of the justice system before it even became a state in 1803. 
However, at this time in the 50s, capital punishment, especially by electric chair, was very controversial. This debate over capital punishment at this time was being driven mostly by the case of Carl Whittier Chessman. In January 1948, he was sentenced to death for a series of crimes he committed in L.A. However, those crimes were robbery, kidnapping, rape, and never murder. Not to mention countless other executions that had been performed that involved completely innocent people. Also, at this time, it was much more likely that a black man would be sentenced to death over a white man, as well as the poor over the rich. Well, yeah. So, yeah, in this time, obviously, things like that were making this super controversial. And while on death row, Jean was granted a stay of execution on the basis of allowing more time for an appeal. The new execution date was set for September 8th, 1958. Gene would say that he had done a lot of thinking about what he did on death row because there wasn't much else to do. He said that he didn't know why he did what he did, and when asked why he murdered Paul, he replied with, quote, I guess I was scared and nervous. So that's enough reason to kill somebody? Yeah, apparently. The Ohio Supreme Court received an appeal from Gene's attorney on the basis of procedural errors. The Supreme Court pushed back the execution date to November 7th to allow time for the court to review the case. The judge denied the appeal in October. For the Amish, they do not believe in capital punishment. However, they hardly ever had to deal with this. During this time, Paul Coblin's widow and his father actually welcomed Jean's parents into their home for a dinner and recognized them as, quote, fellow victims of their son's actions. How big of them? Yeah. Well, that's how, I mean, they felt like they were just as much a victim to Jean's actions because now they have to live with their son, you know, going to die. Right. This was uncharted waters, basically, for the Amish and for the justice system. Reverend Paul Hummel of Berlin Mennonite Church took several Amish ministers and even members of the Koblenz family to the Ohio State Penitentiary to see Jean. Afterwards, there was a petition signed by 150 residents who were Amish and non-Amish asking for mercy that was presented to Governor O'Neill. Having received this, yeah, really, it's really, it's crazy. (laughs) Having received this pardon, the governor weighed the request for Gene and granted clemency for him on November 7th, 1958, just nine hours before he was set to be executed. I was going to say, we're cutting it close here. (laughs) Yeah, real close. They were preparing his last meal. Wow. The governor actually granted clemency for a few other inmates in the state of Ohio that year as well afterwards, which I just thought was interesting. That is interesting. Jane was moved to general population and was going to be eligible for parole someday. Mike was also at Ohio State Penitentiary, and his experience was much different than Jane's while serving his sentence Mike was forced to spend every July 18th, which is the date of the murder, in solitary confinement. And at the time, the prison was extremely overcrowded as well, and he shared a cell with three other men. And that cell was meant for, like, two two people. Yeah. During the next 10 years, there were riots that would erupt in the prison and still much overcrowding. So, pause. Mike's getting, Mike isn't the one that shot Paul, right? And he's getting, like, the brunt of it. Yeah, he had a much worse time from what I could find. Wow. So Mike and Jean were eventually moved to a different facility where they both were eventually paroled in 1972. Something interesting I found was while they were in prison, Ohio's prison population dropped by one third. According to Dr. Bennett J. Cooper, who was the director of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, it was because, quote, increased parole rates and improved community treatment programs, end quote. 
Mike and Jane were bad men when they went to prison, and yet the Amish and their Mennonite counterparts were willing to forgive them and give them a chance to still live a majority of their lives outside of prison once paroled. Each got married once they were free. They actually married sisters, and they both went on with their lives and were liked by their communities. I don't know if liked is actually the right word. It's more like they didn't really commit any other crimes, and they were just like upset. They were tolerated. Yeah. Yeah. Dora and Esther did not continue living in the house where the murder occurred. She moved away and was surrounded by her family and the Amish community who continued to support her through her grieving. The trial and murder of Paul Coblenz was not lost, and his trial impacted the Amish community as well as the Ohio justice system. But I want to know what you guys think. Was there true justice for Coblenz and his family? Yeah, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I think the Amish are very forgiving. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine personally. I mean, forgiving is one thing, but pardoning him and right, and then the justice system basically just letting them go. So how old were they when they got paroled? And Dora never remarried, right? No, not that I found. I could be wrong about that, though. Yeah, they were like in their 30s. And I did know that Gene actually eventually died of because he had a serious alcohol problem. Which is kind oh, of I what, guess he learned too much about that. Like he, yeah, he didn't get any better with that. And does a lot of people argue that it's like it was two young kids? They got drunk and then things went south. Like they didn't mean to kill him, or they didn't have the intent, the premeditation. Well, let us know what you think. I found this case very interesting, especially since it was local in Ohio. Yeah, I'm just curious to see or hear different perspectives on this. So tell us what you think. We will be back next week with a case that I'm covering. I'm not sure what that's going to be yet. So if you have some suggestions, I have some suggestions written down from you guys. But if anybody wants to suggest another case, send us a message on Instagram. Do it. And we will see you next week. Bye, y'all. Bye.